Turn with me again this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 5, as we continue our series through here. We're going to read a fairly long passage this morning, a longer account, and we'll be looking at this uh, this week and next week. Uh, this week we, we will pretty much walk through the, the whole story together, and then next week um, look, look at a smaller portion and, and a little bit more topically. But Acts 5, beginning in verse 12, <clears throat> and we'll read through the end of the chapter. But we have this summary to begin. Hear the word of God. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak. To the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. They returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when they opened them up, when, when we had, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officials, the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we, have, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, uh, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. 
he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Jesus promised that he gave to his disciples, to his apostles, was that he would build his church. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. And though the apostles could and, and should have Uh, accepted that on its face as a promise of Jesus himself, a promise from God himself, and we ought to accept it in the same way. Yet here in Acts, God gives many gracious assurances uh, and examples uh, to the early church and through them to us uh, that he he builds his church, he cares for his church, even as we're often tempted perhaps to to doubt that or to doubt how and, and whether and when. Uh, God is doing that. So I want to look at that theme simply today as, as we simply walk through this, this story again uh, and, and look at it in four sections um, corresponding to the four points you see in your outline, the bulletin there, and just see four ways, four assurances of uh, the fact that God builds and cares for his church. So it would be very helpful, especially this morning, for you to have your Bible open uh, and follow along as you're able uh, through this, um, this account here. So we're looking at the fact that God builds and cares his church. First, uh, by blessing and furthering the gospel. Um, just by way of review, immediately preceding this, what, what we've been studying, we've, we've seen the church sharing everything, generously sharing with anyone who had a need. And then immediately after that, the shocking story of, of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, lying about how they were sharing, um, uh, selfishly, uh, wanting, wanting recognition. Um, but also an, an important piece of the background to, to the story we're reading here, and, and uh, it was something we, sh- we studied not very long ago, was the fact that uh, John and Peter were already arrested, uh, and they were warned, they were threatened by the Sanhedrin. Uh, and that's an important thing to keep in mind as we as we read here. So the first section we're going to look at is, is verses 12 to 16. Verse 12 tells us they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. This verse is the answer to a joke that I heard years ago by a slightly different translation about where the Bible talks about Hondas, because it, in some translation says they were all together in one accord. Haha. <laughs> um, but they were all together, probably talking about the apostles here, uh, just the apostles being together. Again, in Solomon's portico, um, same place that we've been told they were before. They're right back at it, preaching Christ. Um, there's no effort to hide uh, or move around from place to place or be sneaky. They, they go right back to the same place in the temple. People know where to find them. Uh, again, preaching Jesus. Uh, verse 13 and 14 are, are notoriously difficult to interpret, exactly what Luke is telling us here. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, verse 13 says, But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Um, 
So someone, Luke is saying, is afraid to associate with the apostles as they're standing here in the temple day after day and, and preaching. Someone's a little fearful, a little hesitant about that, um, associating with them, with the apostles. So a couple of questions here. Uh, wh- why the fear and hesitancy, whoever this is, why, why are some people fearful and hesitant? Uh, probably a, a, a couple of good reasons, a couple of good possibilities, could be both of them together. Uh, the one is that a couple of the apostles have just been arrested by the Sanhedrin. Uh, the, the high authority uh, among the Jews who killed Jesus not very long ago. Uh, and they've been, they've been severely threatened. Um, that could create some fear. Uh, also, uh, Ananias and Sapphira just died at the feet of the apostles. Um, That's that certainly uh, the, the, the very real presence of a holy God in his church uh, has created some godly trepidation. And, and Luke has just told us that as well. Uh, but, but who are these people? Who are the rest, Luke says, that are, are hesitant about um, you know, standing right there with the apostles out in the open? Um, some have suggested, well, these are, uh, this is not the church. This is the rest of the people. These are the unbelievers in Jerusalem. Um, it's a little hard to fit that, though, with what he immediately says in verse 14, that uh, people were being added, multitudes, constantly. We're, we're coming and hearing the gospel and receiving it. And, and uh, people were bringing lots of, of sick and others to be healed by the apostles. Um, so that, I don't think that's necessarily the best suggestion. Although, again, it's, it's, it's a hard verse to understand. Another suggestion is that these are, these are believers who are hesitating to associate with the apostles there in the temple. Um, we might wonder, how does that fit with chapter 4, where Peter and John were threatened and then released? They come to the church, and the church prays, Lord, give us boldness to, to continue right on preaching uh, your name. Um, although, on, on the other hand, uh, thinking about that possibility, that, that probably was not the entire church, thousands of people. It was probably a small core group that was praying with, with Peter and John there. That was also before Ananias and Sapphira and, and what happened with them. So I, I do think that probably this is referring to uh, some of the believers, um, probably many of them very new converts, um, perhaps those, not those of, of the tight original inner group uh, with the apostles. Um, these, these were new converts. They were not called or prepared in the same way as the apostles to so, so publicly invite, in a sense, the, the, the wrath of the Sanhedrin by continuing to preach there in the temple. Uh, and so I think it's understandable that some of them were a little hesitant after Ananias and Sapphira, hesitant before the threats of the Sanhedrin. It's, it's a tense and a perilous time. And yet, and yet, one of the, the main point maybe of this section is that God is blessing the preaching of the gospel. Uh, he's giving the general population a, a favorable impression toward, toward the apostles. Verse 13, the, the people in verse 13 who held them in high esteem, it says, I think is the population. These, these, are, uh, these are people who are not yet Christians. And whether they are to convert or not, they, they hold the, the apostles in high esteem. Uh, they think well of them. They uh, respect them. Um, and, and multitudes, it says, are being, being added to the, to the church uh, despite the danger and the tension. Uh, Luke has been making notes to this effect a number of times throughout Acts already. Just the, the, the favor God is giving the church with 
people in Jerusalem, uh, chapter 2, and awe came upon every soul. People were amazed uh, by, the church, by, the, by the teaching, perhaps by the fellowship of the church. Uh, later in chapter 2, uh, praising God and having favor with all the people. And, God, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Uh, in chapter 4, we read, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace or great favor was upon them all. And I think that's a reference to the favor they had with, with people. People were generally viewing them uh, well. God was blessing his gospel. Um, and of course, there will be many people opposed. This is a story in part about that. And throughout the book of Acts, there will be many opposed. But the Holy Spirit is at work through his gospel and through the example of the church and their love and their fellowship. Um, God also continues using healing miracles to draw people to hear about Jesus, to confirm the gospel. Uh, verses 15 and 16 describe many people from all over being brought um, to be healed. And we have this interesting note about laying people out in the street so that even Peter's shadow might fall over someone. Um, it's, it's an interesting um, uh, description here. You could note that it, it doesn't actually say whether that worked. Doesn't say whether people were healed by Peter's shadow, but this is the level of, of hope and belief that people had in the power that God was working uh, through Peter. And we could contrast that, whether it was working or not, we can contrast that with the unbelief, for example, of the Sanhedrin, uh, who now in this, this story, we'll get to in a minute, have two miracles of God staring them in the face that they can't deny. Uh, and they don't respond with belief. And yet, here these people are putting absolute faith that, that God is at work through Peter. Uh, there's an interesting parallel uh, in, ter in terms of God healing through, you know, the apostles not actually directly interacting or, or touching or speaking with people. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, we read of Paul. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. Uh, what, what do we make of this? Uh, shadows and handkerchiefs carried off and so on. Um, well, it's, it's not magic. Um, it's, it, it, however these healings are done, it's, it's by God. Um, God could have healed these people, you know, the people that touched the handkerchiefs, you know, a block away or whatever. God could have healed them directly or the people who were hoping to be healed by the shadow or whatever. But God chose always to tie these healings to an apostle who's preaching the gospel. Uh, so whether God was allowing those who, who's, who, who had Peter's shadow pass over them be healed, or those who touched Paul's handkerchief be healed, uh, there was always a, a, a tangible connection to one who's preaching the gospel. It served to confirm the, the word of life. Um, and the same was true with Jesus Miracles, uh, they, they serve to confirm the gospel and bring people to salvation. Uh, secondly, then, let's look at a section, uh, a second, uh, briefer section here uh, in this story uh, and, and see that God is building his church and caring for his people as sovereign protector of his people. Uh, verse 17 to 19. Uh, verse 17, then the, the high priests and the, the Sanhedrin's anger is aroused. Of course, the apostles are directly disobeying their orders and their threats not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Luke tells us that, that also they're just jealous 
they're jealous of the attention, they're jealous of the, the sort of informal authority that the apostles are gaining uh, in the temple uh, by, by their popularity um, and threatening the control and power of the Sanhedrin. Um, so verse 18, they're put in public jail. The, the, the Greek there is actually uh, has an ambiguity to it. it. It could be a public jail or it could be adverbial. It could be saying they're, they're publicly put in jail either way. The point is the Sanhedrin was trying to make a public show of them. Uh, it, was, it was public. They're trying to make a, a, a there's an intended lesson, right? They're trying to make a point for the people, um, trying to shame them that, that, and, and make clear that this message of Jesus is done, um, that anyone, anyone who preaches Jesus uh, is done. We are the authority here. Uh, but my main point in this, this brief section, a thing I want you to notice is that God is going to take the Sanhedrin's intended lesson uh, and, and turn it into his lesson and show his sovereignty. And we see that, of course, most clearly in verse 19, when an angel simply lets them out of prison. And we don't know how that, how that worked uh, undetected. Uh, we'll come to the next section. They clearly didn't know that they were missing. Um, and we'll talk about this more next week as well, but the angel doesn't let them out of prison simply for their sake. It wasn't just to um, help the apostles and make life better for them. Uh, in a sense, in, in the sense that God wants nothing bad or, or hard to happen to them. Uh, he doesn't whisk them away then into the mountains and say, you know, go into hiding. This is why I let you out of prison. No, what does he do? He says, okay, go do it again. Right? Back to the temple. You'll be arrested again, be beaten, and you'll, we'll go through this cycle again. Um, we'll talk about that more again next week. And there, there are a couple more prison releases in the book of Acts, but usually the apostles are not miraculously let out of prison. Um, and God uses, uh, for example, Paul in prison for years, uh, uses him powerfully in that setting. But this surely is a huge encouragement to the apostles for the apostles and, and for us uh, to read about this, God shows that he can protect and deliver his people wherever he wants, whenever he wants, uh, that he's always with them. Uh, but I think even more than that, he shows that he is sovereign. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't allow the Sanhedrin's lesson for the people to stand, that they are in control. Uh, he simply proves that he is sovereign. He will advance his gospel, whether, whether through protections and deliverances as here or through his people sharing in the sufferings of Christ, which in fact is also part of this story still. Uh, thirdly, let's consider a third section, uh, verses 19 to 32, and see that God builds his church by honoring those who put their faith in him and obey him. Again, verse 20, they're told to go and preach again. Uh, the, the Greek of verse 20 is, is very emphatic. It's, it's about taking a stand, being bold, being firm, um, and go preach the whole message of this life, as it says here. It's a little bit awkward in English. Uh, they're to preach the message of life, to, to proclaim the one who conquered death and earned life um, and is life. And so they immediately obey, and there they are again at the temple before the sun is up. Uh, preaching Christ. And the, the Sanhedrin's aim again was to publicly shame them, to publicly shut them up. And God's goal in part 
as we're considering here in this section, is to honor them, to honor their obedience, to honor the, the truth of their witness, um, the faithfulness, their, their faithfulness. This gives us assurance. It's a special illustration that God honors the faithfulness of his people, um, the obedience of his people, especially as they're opposed, as they're persecuted. And, and we ought to trust that that's ultimately true, that that is God's ultimate outcome, that that's his promise throughout Scripture, uh, even when it's not outwardly or immediately the case, as it is here. Uh, God, God provides some miraculous, immediate honor for his people here, but that would have been true even if they're not released from prison. Right? Even those who suffer to the point of death, to the point of martyrdom, as, as all the apostles will, according to, to church tradition, um, no earthly rescue, no, no earthly honor in that, right? But they receive their eternal reward from, from God in heaven, and God uses their witness to honor himself, uh, surely in, in countless ways. We see the flip side of this at work here, too. Uh, God dishonoring those who reject him. Uh, and oppose Jesus. Uh, the story is kind of humorous, in fact. The, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, and, and everyone of importance, verse 21, is, is there. They, they get in their, their official important seats, and they're ready, and they say, okay, bring in the prisoners, and they can't find them, right? And then they do find them, and they're, they're not hiding. They're just right back in the temple where they were the day before. Uh, this, this whole cycle over and over made me think of a little children's book we have at home uh, called A Visitor for Bear. Maybe some of you have seen this or have this book. So Bear wants no visitors at his house, and he has a sign uh, to that effect on his front door, no visitors. And one day, uh, a mouse comes and knocks on the door. He wants to visit with Bear, and Bear says no, no visitors. So he slams the door. And then <clears throat> Bear's making breakfast, and he opens his cupboard, and there's Mouse right in the bowl. And he grabs Mouse angrily and throws him outside and slams the door and goes back to making his breakfast, and he opens the bread drawer, and there's the Mouse. And he grabs the Mouse and throws him outside and locks all kinds of locks on his door. And, and later he opens his fridge, and there's the Mouse. And he, it goes on and on like this, obviously. Uh, but that, 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 I, I thought of that thinking about this, this story, the poor Sanhedrin, over and over again. They must think, well, there we go. We took care of that. We shut them up. And there they are in the same place in the temple preaching again, even when they'd locked them up and put a guard uh, securely in front of the prison. So they rearrest them again. They, they bring them in. Verse, if you read verse 26, it sounds like they could only do that because the apostles cooperated too. Um, and, and what's as, as the apostles are brought into this, this official council, what's the first most obvious question to ask them, right? How did you get out, right? How did you escape? Uh, they, they don't ask that. That's too much of an embarrassment. Uh, they're, they're probably afraid of the answer at this point. Uh, we see God honoring the weak and the humble uh, and shaming the proud and the powerful, uh, as, as Paul will write later in the New Testament. Paul, uh, Peter has another opportunity then to proclaim uh, the gospel to the Sanhedrin, uh, to proclaim especially the resurrection. Um, and I want you to see another way in the background God is shaming the prideful, sinful opposition of the Sanhedrin, uh, uh, to their, their opposition to the grace of Jesus. You remember the Sanhedrin is mostly made up of Sadducees, right? This wealthy elite sect of Judaism. 
And do you remember what was unique about the Sadducees? Uh, three, three beliefs particularly that was unique to the Sadducees. Well, they didn't believe in miracles. You know, here's the second miracle staring them in the face. Right, A locked prison, guards stationed. Uh, the second thing about the Sadducees, this comes up in the Gospels too, is they don't believe in angels. Um, so God uses an angel uh, to release the, the apostles um, right in front of them. And then finally, uh, also uh, it comes up in the Gospels, they don't believe in the resurrection. And so God puts Peter right in front of them again to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus and assure them that this is the risen Jesus who is doing all this work in Jerusalem. And so uh, verse 24 says that they were perplexed. Uh, they were extra, extra perplexed. Their, their entire twisted worldview was torn down in a day <laughs> again, uh, very creatively uh, in God's providence. Uh, and then see how God again honors his word and his servants in Peter's speech. Verse 29, famously, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, similar to what he told them in chapter 4, basically the same thing. Um, it's, it's firm but a respectful answer. And it's a remarkable, very brief speech or portion of it that Luke has given to us here. Peter mentions all three members of the Trinity in these few verses here. Uh, he says Jesus was raised to give repentance and forgiveness. He's effectively offering salvation to the Sanhedrin, um, to the priests. And, and we'll, in the next chapter, shortly, we'll come to Luke's comment that many uh, priests, a great many priests, in fact, Luke says, came into the faith. Um, a remarkable note. Um, his focus is again on the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. And, and we've seen that before. The summary of the apostles' preaching and their witness is they are witnesses to what? Witnesses to the resurrection. Right? Why, the, why this emphasis on the resurrection? It almost sounds like that's all they talked about um, is the resurrection. I, I don't think it means that that's all they were preaching at all. And we, we have examples of that. But the, the person in the ministry of Jesus, uh, his death, these things were known in that day, right? It was very fresh. But the great question, the greatest question was, was he who he said he was? Were his claims and his warnings true? And, and the resurrection is absolutely key, then it, it still is in our faith. If God raised and exalted Jesus, then he is who he says he is. Right? You must listen to him. God has vindicated him. And so everything else Jesus taught and did, his death and so on, flows from the resurrection, from there being witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So remarkably, again, Peter faces down uh, these, these 71 members of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, if you will. And even though he's not trained in legal defense or in, or in fancy oratory, uh, he boldly and wisely answers them. Uh, and God honors him uh, in doing that. As John Knox once said, with God, man is always in the majority. So God honors his apostles, filling them with the Holy Spirit, uh, giving them wisdom and eloquence in the face of persecution, uh, and, and bearing great fruit through their witness, uh, many being added constantly, Luke says. Well, then fourthly, uh, last section, we see um, God building his church and caring for his people by using many different things, uh, anything God can use to advance uh, this word of life. Uh, this will be partly a summary point of our passage, but, but first I want to look at this section about 
Gamaliel. So in verse 33, after Peter's done with his speech, uh, his answer to the Sanhedrin, we read about how mad they were. Uh, it says they were cut to the quick. That's an, an idiom. The, the verb literally means to saw something in half. So it's a graphic idiom. We have, we have similar idioms in English like um, being split open in rage. It's basically the same kind of idiom. They're, they're very mad. Um, so in steps Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel is a very famous Pharisee. There were evidently a few Pharisees on the Sanhedrin as well. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, did not see everything eye to eye, to say the least. But, and the Sadducees were dominant. But there were a few Pharisees. He's one of the leading rabbis of the time. He's the grandson of the rabbi Hillel, who's a very famous rabbi in, in the history of Ju- Judaism, um, who began a school for the Pharisees, was very influential um, and so Gamaliel at this time is the head of that school, um, the leader. There's, there are really two main schools there in Judaism, uh, Gamaliel's and uh, the one of Rabbi Shammai. Uh, they're sort of rivals. They, they have some differences. Um, and then perhaps most interestingly about Gamaliel, we'll, we find in Acts 22 uh, that this is Paul's mentor. Right? Paul is a disciple of Gamaliel. Uh, he's the one who trained uh, Paul when he was Saul. So Gamaliel uh, steps up. He, he sends the disciples out for a time, <coughs> the apostles. And verse 35 says, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. And he's recognizing the Sanhedrin are in a bit of a pickle here. They, they're raging mad. They want to kill the apostles. Um, the apostles have much favor, though, with the people and they risk a riot, they risk uh, the Romans taking notice and stepping in and maybe taking away some of the control and privileges that the Sanhedrin have. Um, and so Gamaliel says, be careful what you do here. And he gives two examples, uh, two prior rebels or sectarian teachers that have, had arisen um, to illustrate his advice, this uh, Theodos guy and then Judas. And the, the first, Theodos is not really known to... Um, to later historians, uh, but the latter is, the, the Judas uh, sort of uh, movement. Um, and, and in both cases, Gamaliel's point is, look, they, they rounded up a following, you know, a decent following and created some excitement, and then it just imploded, right? It wasn't from God, it imploded. Um, Gamaliel's saying, if, if this Christian thing is not from God, it will implode, it'll fail, if it is from God, you don't want to fight against it anyways. Um, interestingly, the, the Judas movement that he talks about gave rise to the zealots uh, of Judaism. This is where the zealots came from. And we know the zealots at least from one of the apostles who was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. right? Um, and so the, the zealots were thought very differently from the Sadducees. They were very anti-Rome. In fact, they wanted to start a revolution to kick Rome out. The Sadducees were very happy to keep peace with Rome and keep their own authority and power, right? So part of Gamaliel's advice is, just like you are sort of letting the zealots be out there, let the Christians be, and if it's not of God, it'll, it'll ultimately fall apart. Uh, but again, that, that, that's really Gamaliel's main point. If this, if this is not from God, uh, it will fail. Let's, let's wait and see. And sometimes there's debate about, is, is Gamaliel's advice... Uh, godly biblical advice or not. Um, I don't think it's Luke necessarily wants us to see it as 
wise, godly counsel in every sense. You know, the, the priests did have a, an obligation, maybe not, not through murder or force, but, but to oppose wrong teaching as they saw it. Of course, they're on the wrong side of that here. They're confused and blinded by their pride. But in a sense, Gamaliel makes Luke's point for the book of Acts for him. Gamaliel says, let's sit back and watch and see if this is of God. And that's what Luke is trying to show us. And, and, and what already should be abundantly clear to Luke's readers, but will only become more clear. Um, that not only is this movement from God, uh, but as Gamaliel says, you will be powerless to stop it if it is from God. And th- that's exactly what we see throughout the book of Acts. Is no matter what the opposition does in Jerusalem or throughout the Roman Empire, the gospel advances. Uh, people are powerless. Uh, whether they kill apostles or, or throw Christians in jail or whatever they do, they're powerless to keep the gospel from advancing. Uh, as the story goes on, uh, then the Sanhedrin uh, takes Gamaliel's advice. Essentially, it doesn't say why they take his advice, but it, it also seems like it's, uh, they don't purely take his advice. It's something of a compromise, right? Um, because they flog them. Uh, first, and this is, this is almost certainly, the, the reference in the Greeks, almost certainly to the famous 40 minus 1, the 39 lashes uh, that, that was so brutal it could, in fact, uh, kill someone, uh, lead to bleeding to death. Uh, it was that brutal. And so it seems like they came to a compromise between uh, killing them or imprisoning them permanently, which would risk you know, the people rioting and Rome coming in and... and uh, and so on. And on the other hand, just letting them go and sort of losing face because they had commanded them not to preach this name anymore. Are they just going to, is their word mean nothing? Are they just going to let them go? And so they, they flog them and they let them go. Uh, and, and next week we'll come back and look at the apostles' reaction uh, in the last couple of verses here. But again, my point here is that Gamaliel is just one among many things in this passage that God uses Uh, to further his purposes, uh, to care for his people. Um, God uses this, the the questionable advice of an unbeliever here uh, is used to free the apostles and continue their preaching. Uh, God uses the faithfulness of his people in this passage, including their willingness to suffer and their humility. Uh, God uses the gospel message itself, uh, not, not force, not coercion, not threats, uh, like, like the opposition uses, but the gospel, uh, the simple word of, of Christ, uh, dying for sinners and raising again, foolishness to Gentiles, a stumbling block to the Jews, and yet many are believing and receiving Christ and receiving him as king and savior. Uh, God uses angels, uh, something we might come back to later in Acts and, and think about a little bit more, but there's an encouragement here to us to be mindful um, as perhaps maybe we're often not, of the, of the spiritual realm and the myriads of angels serving God's will and serving God's people. Uh, God uses them here, and, and God uses wicked rulers and imprisonment and beating in this passage and turns it for his purposes and for the good and growth of his church uh, to bring more and more people into union with Christ uh, forever. So I'll just leave you with this simple encouragement. Jesus is building his church. Uh, God can use and is using anything and everything as sovereign and good God to your good uh, and to his glory, uh, to the building up of his church. 
uh, when you can see that clearly and when you can't. Uh, God is with his church, caring for his church in his perfect plan. And this, this passage gives us some, some uh, clear and encouraging and dramatic examples of that. So go with that assurance, that encouragement this morning. Uh, and we'll return to this story next week, particularly looking at, at the last couple of verses uh, of this chapter. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, for the, the encouragements of this passage uh, and the ways that it shows that you are present and active in your church. Uh, Lord, present and active um, maybe in different ways than you tend to be uh, today in our life as you, as you have built your church uh, in such significant ways around the globe. Uh, and yet, Lord, use this to assure us uh, that you are with us, that you are sovereign, uh, that you are building your church and caring for your people. Uh, let us praise you for that and uh, we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.